Well, we are, uh, we are pleased to announce uh, that another couple in our uh, congregation had a baby last night. Uh, and so Liam Michael Anderson was born last evening uh, to David and Madison Anderson. Uh, it's too early to have pictures yet. Uh, they're being developed, I guess, or, or something. Uh, they'll be here shortly. So we are delighted uh, for the two of them. This is their first child, uh, so we're excited. That being said, if you would like to volunteer for the nursery, there is a need. I, I kid. Well, there is a need, but anyhow. Uh, so praise the Lord for those two. We want to be praying uh, for them in this whole process. Uh, I haven't been here with it for a couple weeks with you guys. My name is Greg. I serve as one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure to be uh, back. Uh, my wife and I, we took our 30th anniversary trip. Uh, we were about 10 months late on our trip, but uh, it was, we went to Rome and Greece, and it was really beautiful. Uh, and boy, the food was really good in Rome. Um, so one would like to think there were more exciting things, but that food was, was really good. Uh, so praise the Lord. Uh, so, uh, let me pray. Uh, Father, uh, we do lift up uh, our friends, David Madison. We're thankful, Lord, for this uh, incredible gift uh, of baby Liam in their life. And we pray, Lord, that you would watch over uh, the two of them, three of them, uh, this family. We continue to pray, Lord, for Madison's health and recovery through this whole process, certainly so. Uh, but Lord, as they just begin to pour into the life of this little one, would you strengthen them? Would you inspire them. Um, we pray for our role as a body of believers and as friends in their life, Lord, uh, just to be an encouragement and a support. And, uh, and Lord, we pray that for each one of us. As we run our race, Lord, you've blessed us, uh, Lord, with a congregation of believers, men and women, young people, Lord, that are uh, seeking to go the same place we want to go, and that is in in uh, unhindered fellowship with you, both here on the earth and then ultimately in heaven. And so, Lord, uh, we want to come alongside of one another. We want to encourage one another. We want to strengthen the feeble knee. Lord, we want to learn from those that are a little ahead of us, and we want to look back, and we want to uh, support the one that's coming up after us, and we want to do it for your glory. And, Lord, the church, the local church especially, this is a blessing, Lord, that we don't want to neglect and so as we pour ourselves into one another's lives, Lord, we know that you bring good from that. And Lord, that you designed it to be that way. Uh, so Lord, bless us as we keep learning, keep growing, and run our race toward you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are, I'm thankful for Will filling in the last two weeks. Uh, we are returning today to 1 Timothy chapter 5, so go ahead and uh, begin to locate that. If you don't have a Bible with you, we encourage you to bring your Bible with you so that you can study along, perhaps jot some notes to yourself, maybe put a little uh, piece of paper in a corner so you can go back to that later in the week or, or something like that. And if you don't have a Bible yet, you'll find one in one of the chairs in front of you there or to your side. Please take it. We want you to have that if you don't have your own, that you can begin reading the Word of God on your own each day. Uh, because that, uh, the entrance of God's word brings light and life, and so we want you to have that. So we are today in chapter 5. We've been in chapter 5 now for a few weeks. I think this is our fourth study in chapter 5, and what we re will, I will remind you of is that here in chapter 5, Paul has got, gone to the place with Timothy. Pa Timothy. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy uh, to give him direction and guidance on leading a congregation of believers particularly in a city that's called Ephesus, and it certainly applies to any uh, person or people trying to lead a congregation anywhere. And as Paul went into chapter 5, he began to give him very practical instructions. Timothy, here's just some practical things. I've been doing this for 30 years that you need to know. Some of those, for example, uh, when you work with older men, just enter in carefully. They're older men. You're a younger man. Don't just kind of go in there pushing people around. Have some respect. That's a very practical advice. When you work with younger women, be really careful. It could go down this path, and you don't want it to go down this path. Again, very, very practical information. Then he began to talk about, well, what about widows? 
How do we respond to widows, particularly those that are in need, they're financially destitute? Who do you provide for? Which of those can go out and get a job? Which of those can't get a job? Which of those should the church be regularly financially supporting? And is there a role for older widows who may not be able to go out and get some job, but they have a lot of wisdom that they've learned? And they should be brought into the congregation to support those that are younger than them in that similar situation. And Paul talked about that, and he spent some time with that. As we come now to verse 17, it's the kind of the spinal section of this chapter. It's still that very practical advice for Timothy leading the church, but it's entering into a new section altogether, and that is how to deal with uh, elders in the church, and how should the church be dealing with those that are the elders of the congregation. And I'll remind you, the same word that is used to describe someone that is older, an elder, is also the word that is used to describe the person that is in a leadership position in the church. That person is also called an elder. And so you have to look at the context of the passage to, to discover, are we talking about an older person or are we talking about a person in the position of leadership? And here in chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Paul is talking about the person that is in the position of leadership when he uses this word elders. Some of your versions may instead have the word overseer there. Some might even go so far as to use the English word that's closer looking to the Greek word, and that's the word presbyter. In each of those instances, we're talking about the same person, the person that is in a leadership position governing, if you will, a local body of believers, a pastor, an elder, a presbyter, an overseer, and so on. Now, Paul's already addressed the topic of elders in this book. If you've been with us, you know that that he brings it up, there's a brief mention in chapter 2, he brings it up in chapter 3, they're mentioned again in chapter 4. Chapter 3 is perhaps the largest section, and there it talks about the qualifications for an elder, that an elder must be above reproach, an elder must be the husband of one wife, the elder must uh, be able to teach, and so on. We have a whole list of them there in that chapter. So that's, that's the responsibilities for the qualifications that an elder must have. Here, in this portion of the chapter, Paul turns his attention toward the type of people the congregation need to be toward those elders. All right, so I'll go back. Chapter 3, the type of person the elder needs to be in a congregation. Here, the type of person the congregation needs to be as they relate to that elder. Are you with me? Okay, so that, that's where Paul uh, is going here. Remember, Timothy, go to Ephesus Attain order and maintain order. Things are out of control over there. I need you to go in, in, in my stead. And this is one of the ways that we can maintain order. How should the congregation respond to its leaders? I'll outline it in this way. If you're jotting down some notes, four things. Number one, he he's going to talk about honoring and respecting those that are serving in the role of an overseer in a local congregation. All right, we'll come back to that. Number two, how should Timothy, as kind of the, the head overseer there, how should he handle accusations that are made against an overseer? Number three, how should he then respond if those accusations prove to be true? And then finally, a section on Timothy taking great care before naming anyone an elder. All right, take your time with the person that you're going to put into that position. I heard one guy, he summarized it this way, that Timothy's instructions here in chapter 5, protecting the elders, correcting the elders, and selecting the elders. And I think that's a helpful way to look at it. So we're going to look at this today in three separate sections, verses 17 and 18, which it considers our response to those entrusted to our spiritual care, verses 19 to 21, which talks about potentially disciplining a spiritual leader, and then verses 22 through 25, which has to do with the process of naming someone to that position. All right, so let's dive in, starting in verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. Now, again, we're not talking about an older person. We're talking about a person in leadership of the congregation serving in that position. Now, in our present context, typically, and I'm talking about like United States of America 2023 um, and other parts of the world, I'm sure, typically you have a, an elder board, which is comprised of a number of people, a number of men typically in our, uh, in our setting, 
that volunteer to support the pastoral staff in the leadership of a church. Would everybody say, yeah, that's my understanding of it? Different back then. And so back then, the person that would fill this role of an elder would be more filling the role of what we might think of as a pastor. Somebody that is full-time doing what they're doing, directing the church, teaching, managing the operation of the facility and its funds, and all that sort of stuff. So in your mind, if when I say elder, you're picturing a guy that goes to a meeting once a month or something like that. Try to picture in your mind more that pastor that is serving in that role kind of on that full-time basis. All right, is that helpful? All right, I think it will be um, here. There are a whole variety of terms that are used, pastor, shepherd, elder, overseer, presbyter. As I said earlier, I think the, they're all interchangeable. And I think the different words are kind of helpful because when you think of a pastor, you think of someone that's shepherding, a, pa- a shepherd or feeding the sheep, for instance. When you think of an overseer, you think of their authority and their leadership. When you think of an elder, you think of their spiritual maturity as one that might be older in the faith. And all of those are uh, aspects of the same person that we are talking about. We're talking about the leader of a local body of believers. Now, as you look at verse 17, you see the two primary responsibilities of that pastor, or the two primary responsibilities of the elder. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so what are the two primary responsibilities? It's ruling and it's preaching and teaching. Ruling, speaking of the idea of oversight and direction for a congregation, teaching and preaching, speaking of teaching and preaching. All right, there you go. And he says, especially those that labor in that preaching and teaching. Now, that's an indicator that not all elders, not all pastors are going to primarily be about preaching and teaching. And so I primarily do the preaching and teaching here, particularly on Sunday mornings um, here, and our pastoral staff, Will and Jim, primarily do a lot of the preaching and teaching on, in our Bible studies and things like that that are offered here. But we have eight of us that serve in the role as elders. And so not all elders are necessarily going to be laboring in preaching and teaching. We all are able to teach. That's a qualification of an elder from chapter 3. But we're all in this process together of working side by side to rule, or if you will, to offer oversight to this body of believers. But there will be some that are especially devoted to this role of preaching and teaching. And Paul points that out there. Paul says that all elders are to be honored and respected, that God has raised up those individuals to have oversight of your soul. That's the role of an elder in your life. If you have committed yourself to a local body of believers, those individuals have oversight over your soul. And if they're doing it well, and what I mean by that is that they are looking out for your spiritual well-being, they're helping you to run your spiritual race, if they're doing that well, then they should be honored. They should be respected as a result of doing so. Honored, respected, listened to. When you, know, when you come to them for advice and they direct you to the scripture and give you that advice, you don't say, oh, that wasn't what I was hoping for, and go find somebody else. You at least say, well, I appreciate that. Let me go before the Lord and pray and think that through. You honor them, you respect them, you give them a level of proper deference. The Christian's response to anybody in authority, our mayor, our president, uh, you know, your boss, whatever it might be, anyone that is in authority over your life, our response to that person should naturally be honor. Even if you don't, I can't agree with that person, I don't like that person, their politics are different than mine, they're not from my political party, you can at the very least respect the position, even if you find it difficult to respect the person. And so that should just be our natural response to those that are in a position of authority in our lives. But Paul says here, those that do it well, those that are in authority that do it well over us and they're looking out for our spiritual well-being and doing a good job in that process, Paul says that they are worthy of a double measure of honor. Now what exactly does that mean? Well, I'll draw your attention. Look back in your Bibles to verse 3 of the same chapter. There, you remember, Paul said, honor widows who are truly widows. 
And we spent an entire sermon uh, Sunday morning on what this idea of honoring widows means and what, what does Paul mean when he says who are truly widows. Remember there the word honor meant to regularly financially support this widow that was truly a widow. And so this word here, honor, it has to do with financially supporting. And to it's, it's very similar to the English word we have, honorarium, where a person is given uh, a, a financial stipend of sorts for the work that they are doing. And so, yes, it talks about the idea of respect, and it includes the idea of honor and deference and so on and listening to. But here, Paul is making the point it also includes double honor, also includes the idea of financial provision. Again, 1 Timothy 5.3, you might also look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 6. And so Paul's point then, and he's going to go on to substantiate it with two different scriptures, is if the elder or the pastor's time is devoted to this work fully, then he is worthy of financial support that will enable him to do this work fully. And I think it's very important to understand it. This isn't a reward. Wow, you've, you've done so much here. We want to give you this. The idea is you do so much, we want to free you up and enable you to continue to do this. Are you with me? And that's the reason why you would financially support uh, a person in the ministry in this particular way. There are some people that completely disagree with this, that churches should remain eight, ten people, and, and if someone's not willing to do it and get paid for it, then they shouldn't be in that position at all. I don't see it that way. I will say this. I think that if a pastor will stop doing it, because, well, if you're not paying me, I ain't doing anything, well, then that person shouldn't be your pastor or whatever. And times come, you know, where things get difficult and everyone starts losing their jobs uh, or whatever, or being able to financially support, and the pastor goes and goes and gets a, an outside job to, to earn a living to provide for his family, that, that, that's the heart of a pastor. He still keeps doing what he was called to do, but also recognizes, you know what, this church can at this particular point in time financially support me to do this full time. Will the amount of work that person does, will it, will it shrink a bit? More than likely. Because, look, I'll tell you, I, I spend probably 30 hours a week studying. If I had to be at a job cutting lawns 30 hours a week, that... You see, like you, you can one or the other, you know, there. I would stay up a little bit later at night and probably be less baseball games watching on TV. Um, but the reality is uh, you have to do what you have to do. Now, Paul uses two different scriptures to support his position. The first is from the book of Deuteronomy. The second is going to be from the book of Luke. So notice what Paul says. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So two different scriptures. The first one there is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, 4. The second one is found in the Gospel of Luke. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul, who is a contemporary of Luke, says that the book of Luke is scripture. He acknowledges it as such, and he quotes it as such. And so that's the verse that says, the laborer deserves his wages. The Old Testament law provided that when the oxen threshed out the grain, they'd put a rope, oftentimes a pole there in the middle, and the thing would just sort of walk around and thresh out the grain. they keep the good stuff, get rid of the bad stuff. The Old Testament law provided that when the oxen threshed the grain, that he was entitled to eat of that grain. And so as he's walking around doing his thing, he could bend down and take a little bit and keep walking and chewing as he goes there. And that it would be essentially cruel for this poor animal to be doing all that hard work for your benefit and for him not to be able to eat a little bit of that food. Paul develops this idea in, in good length in 1 Corinthians 9. You might want to jot that down as a note to go back to. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about it. And the point is this. If God required that animals that are laboring to provide physical food for others were to be fed, how much more so would he want faithful pastors that are laboring to provide spiritual food to be provided for. Again, he adds the words of Jesus from Luke 10. He says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so if pastors are faithful in leading and feeding God's people, then it's appropriate that a congregation ought to be faithful to financially support them, to adequately financially support them as they're able to do so. 
I mentioned 1 Corinthians 9, it, verse 11 of that whole, and read the whole section, but verse 11 of that passage, it says, if we have sown, this is Paul writing, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Galatians chapter 6, Paul wrote, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And again, there's another side of this coin that a pastor must never minister simply for the prospect of earning a paycheck or earning some money. The elder that elders well, I think I made that phrase up, but the elder that elders well will do this work whether they're getting paid for it or not. Now we have some more ground to cover. Let's go to the second section. Look at verse 19 and 20. There we read, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. This would be the idea here of both protecting and correcting an elder. The spiritual leader is not above rebuke. And you'll hear some people say that. A person says, whoa, what's that about? Hey, don't come near the Lord's anointed or you'll experience the consequences or something like that. A spiritual leader is not above rebuke if a rebuke is needed. But at the same time, they should not be rebuked for unfair accusations. Somebody came and said, you did this, so you're out of here. Well, wait a minute. Like, who said what and where? And like, can we have a trial of some sorts here? Can we discuss this sort of a matter here? And so Paul here, he presents Timothy with this principle that no disciplinary action should be brought against an elder or anybody, really, unless the charge can be corroborated. And he, he says by two or three witnesses. That was, a, again, a principle of the Old Testament. And it's carried over even to, into our current system of jurisprudence, this idea of there has to be witnesses that attest to this. It's the same principle, ultimately, that applies to the dis disciplining of any church member. You remember in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus sort of unpacked this. You have a problem with your brother, go to your brother. Share with him. And if he won't listen to you, bring a second person and, and then, or a third. And then ultimately bring it to the church. There's a process that needs to take place here. This is what we read in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of these two or three witnesses. And so this is a principle from the times of the Old Testament, from the days of Jesus, the writings here of the Apostle Paul. It carries over here. Paul is saying to Timothy, look, if somebody brings an accusation against one of the leaders, you need to take it seriously. But if it's baseless, you need to treat it as if it's baseless. We know that Timothy had problems he was going to have to deal with there in Ephesus. That's part of the reason Paul sent him to that particular city to do what he was going to do. But even if that wasn't the case, Paul knows that since elders occupy pastors, occupy a position of responsibility in the church, he knows that they're going to become a special target of the enemy. That the enemy loves to take out leaders in one way or another because oftentimes the, the rank and file will call them. Many times folks in the rank and file are like, well, if he can't do it, I can't do it. Or the whole thing's a sham anyway, or whatever it might be. And taking one out, he takes 10 out. You with me? And so he knows that. And Paul knows. Paul's been in this ministry here 35 years, 40 years. He knows that leaders often become a special target of the enemy. And so the first Holy Spirit-inspired instruction that Paul provides to Timothy is that a measure of protection needs to be granted to the elders to protect them from baseless attacks. He says no charge or accusation should be received against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul's first caution to Timothy is, look, be sure of your facts. Before you move forward with anything, be sure of your facts. And you do that through the multiple witnesses. Now, Paul is also keenly aware that the position will likely bring with it all sorts of attacks. Again, they're designed to hinder the word from going forth. But he also is aware that sometimes leaders fall. Leaders are sinners too. Congregation members fall and stumble. And leaders are just as 
prone to fall as well. He knows that they're not immune from falling into sin. And it's a helpful reminder if you're a leader here at Calvary in some way or another, or anywhere you're a leader, you need to be just as on your guard as you did before you became a leader. You don't enter into some position of leadership and now you got it all worked out and you can cut corners and do this and that because you can stumble just like you did when you first became a believer. Paul knows that. And so Paul says, look, when the case involves a sinning elder, there was an accusation brought against this leader, and it's proven itself to be true, Paul knows that and says here that that elder must be addressed. It has to be dealt with. Elders are to be protected from false accusations, but that doesn't mean pastors are to be protected from false accusations, but that doesn't mean they're to receive immunity from true ones. We'll just look past it there. Paul says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Now, remind yourself of the qualifications of an elder from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's what I quoted earlier about you know, being above reproach, a husband and one wife, able to teach, and so on. Anything that causes an elder to violate those qualifications would be grounds for rebuke in the presence of all. Now notice what Paul says, though. He says that persist in sin. So we're not talking about that momentary lapse in judgment. We're not talking about that impulsive response, which sometimes comes when we're frustrated or whatever it might be. Paul is talking about those that are persisting in their sin, those that are walking in deliberate disobedience. That's what Paul is talking about. And so the accusation has come, it's been investigated a little bit, and it becomes clear, yes, that is what this pastor has gotten himself into. Paul, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says such individuals must be addressed. They need to be rebuked in the presence of all. There's some debate, does that mean rebuked in the presence of all the elders, or does that mean rebuked in the presence of the entire congregation? I think in the context of a leadership, it's the presence of the entire congregation. It's a serious thing. God has placed you in a role of leadership in the lives of these people, and they are looking to you, and they are following you. And you're fooling around with sin and persisting, not just messing up one time, but persisting in sin and ignoring the leading of God's Holy Spirit. That needs to be addressed, and Paul will explain why in a moment. Now, away from leadership, all that name the name of Christ can open themselves up to being disciplined for their sin. There's a lot of different places that talk about the disciplining of a church member that is in willful disobedience. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what the Bible says, that sort of thing. And so Matthew 18 talked about it, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians 6. John, you sticking with me on all these? No, okay. Uh, it's a little joke. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 Timothy 2, Titus 3, 2 John 9. A lot of places, would you agree? Did everybody get those? You write them down? Probably not. But a lot of places talk about how uh, one member can discipline another member. And by that, we think of discipline like, you're in trouble, young man. It's just simply, it's this idea of coming to another and saying, brother, I'm concerned. I'm seeing you one-to-one. It's private, it's just me and you. And I'm concerned. I've been noticing the way that you've been flirting with this lady who's not your wife, or whatever it might be. All right, church member to church member. Here, Paul is dealing with the church leader that is walking in deliberate rebellion. He says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, that the rest may stand in fear. Yikes, right? To whom much is given, much is required, we're told. And being a leader in the church, it's, it, it doesn't shield someone from accountability. It actually makes them more accountable to the congregation. And so Paul's admonition in such situations that a public rebuke needs to occur. A public rebuke that states the sin or sins that this person has persisted in. A public rebuke that includes an explanation of how the church leadership sought to deal with that person in their persistent sin and how they're going to deal with it 
moving forward since the person refuses to repent. I don't think necessarily that every sin like this, persistent sin, necessarily means uh, removal from a position, but I do think there are some that it does. You've crossed over and you went on this particular line. You're still a Christian and you can still fellowship with us, but as far as leadership, you've disqualified yourself from that position. And that's why a leadership board needs to be coming together, discussing these things, and then communicating clearly so there's not miscommunication. Oh, he just didn't like that guy. That's why they got rid of him. Or he was, that guy was a threat. Or, let me explain exactly what went down. And here's the seven of us, eight of us, and we're talking about this is exactly what went down and how we saw it and so on and so forth. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Hopefully we will never have to have this kind of a conversation. But I've been around long enough to know that oftentimes the conversation is, needs to be had. Paul goes on and he says, the effect then of doing that, it causes the rest to stand in fear. Believe me, I have actually been in a setting where a good sister in the Lord went a direction and it had to be uh, dealt with. I'll tell you, you sit in that and you're not proud. You're not sitting in that meeting like, I knew it, she was a mess. I knew she'd fall. You're sitting in there, oh, Lord, keep me. It should humble you. It should cause fear. Man, I never want to find myself in a situation like that. It should cause that fear. I would hope that wouldn't be the primary reason we keep from sinning. I would hope our primary reason is, Lord, I don't want anything to come between me and you. But at the very least, it could serve a very helpful purpose. I don't want to find myself there either. A healthy fear. Now, Paul goes on in verse 21, he says, Now, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul knows nobody wants to have this conversation. I'm not just looking for conflict. Oh, man, who can I stick it to today or whatever? Paul knows that. Paul knows Timothy's nature. Timothy really has presented himself, well, Paul has presented Timothy as a timid soul in so many ways that needed to have the courage to lead here. So Paul knows that it's going to take a lot of courage on the part of Timothy to follow through with this. And so he reminds him, he says, Timothy, remember ultimately who you stand in front of. He says, uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. He says, ultimately, you're going to respond to God and Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it's the, the elect angels that are looking down and observing. And so, well, the they might, the elder might get mad at me if I do this. I'm 35, he's 65, he's been around, everybody likes him. He might get mad if I confront him on this area of sin. There might even be some in the congregation that aren't going to like me. They're going to be upset with me if I do this. There may be some that leave the congregation if I take this stand in this particular way. Another thing you might be fearful of, what if word gets out to the community and they know we're less than perfect? That's going to hurt the church and the ministry of the church and God and Jesus and all this. Oh, my gosh. And so that might cause him to be afraid to do this. Or you go a different angle. Timothy has been working with this guy for years probably. Loves this guy. Let's just, you know, hey, let, let's just start new right now and, and let's not do anything. And we'll just move on and no one needs to know. That's not the instructions that Paul gives him. Paul lists two dangers that Timothy could find himself drawn to. One is uh, prejudice, and the other is partiality. I never liked that guy to begin with. Get him up in front of the trial, and we can get rid of him, or whatever. That would be prejudice. Partiality is, well, he's a good guy. I like him. Did the same thing as that guy that I threw out of here, but, you know, he's my friend. That's partiality. Paul says, look, don't prejudge a case. And certainly don't go the opposite direction by being partial to those you do like and don't like and so on. Your judgment must be entirely unbiased. And you must, according to the scripture, and your, all your efforts and you, this person is persisting in it and so on. And may that bring disrepute to the community? Yeah, think about it. You know, a, a pastor of a church gets involved in some sin and he's removed from his role as the leader of that church. Does that word filter out in the community? Sure it does. And people, unbelievers, oh, can you believe it? That guy running around here like a good holy family man or whatever, and look what he did or whatever, sure. And there are a lot of churches that just try to keep it quiet. 
they, they move the pastor out quietly. He retires. He's going to take a new position somewhere. And then, you know, they kind of push him out. And nobody knows. And we've saved God's reputation. God doesn't need us to save his reputation. He's totally fine. And he's totally comfortable if people are speaking bad about him, so to speak. And people think, I don't know about that God. He's not like, oh, my gosh, they don't like me. He, he's totally fine. He's got a very good self-image, uh, the Lord does here. And so I liked what Guy King said. He said, whoever's name be tarnished, may God's name be honored. And that's ultimately our desire. Now let's go on to that last section. Look at verse 22. Starting in verse 22, I'll pose this question. What's the best way to avoid having to deal with a sinning elder? Is being really careful who you put into that position to begin with. That's the best way to avoid it. So Paul writes this, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, he says. And we have this parenthesis here. It's kind of out of place, but we'll talk about it. He says, no longer drink wine, only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I like to remember that little cartoon with the squirrel, the dog, and the, he would get distracted. I feel like that's what happened to Paul there. Uh, we'll talk about it, though. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So, also the good works, also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And so, final instructions here about selecting and ordaining pastors and elders. His advice is, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, of course, he gave qualifications in chapter 3, so that's part of the instructions here. But here, his instruction is simply, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, if you're not familiar with what we mean by that here, the laying on of hands is the practice of literally laying your hand on a person and praying for them. Uh, and many times we do that when a person is ordained for a ministry. They're going to go out to the mission field. We'll lay hands on them and we'll pray for them. They're going to take on a role as a pastor of a church. We're going to lay hands on them and we're going to pray for them. It serves this purpose, among other things, of commissioning a person to ministry. And it has the effect that all of those that come alongside lay their hands on the person and utter a prayer over that person's life is affirming the person's suitability for ministry, if you will. We have seen God's work on your life, and we are acknowledging that work on your life, and now we are ordaining you to this ministry. It is a statement by the existing leadership inviting this new person into that existing leadership, inviting them to the leadership team. And it's expressing solidarity. We're going to run the same direction together. It's expressing union with that person. It's identifying with that person. So the best way to prevent unqualified elders from serving in the ministry is to not be hasty in the laying on of hands upon that individual. I like how John MacArthur explained this. He said, investigation must precede ordination. Here at Calvary, we exercise this principle through this statement that a person is a pastor or an elder, or a ministry leader, long before being named as such. You remember, you've heard me say that before? A pastor is a pastor long before we name them a pastor. An elder is an elder long before we name them as an elder. We are just confirming what we already see God doing. And so Paul's caution to Timothy was that a man was to prove himself in ministry before he be recognized in ministry. Again, ordination is simply recognizing the calling that God has had on that person's life. And since that's what it is supposed to be, all the more reason that we take our time. We're not, we're not, we're hasty, we're not hasty there. A potential leader's life has to be carefully observed, has to be even examined. Talk to people. Find out from their wife a little bit about what the home life is like. Friends, family members, or whatever it might be to make sure there's nothing seriously amiss in that person's life. No pastor or church member is perfect. Amen? Certainly, I got a lot of amens. I know you, Greg, you're not, you know. Nobody's perfect. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive after that, right? Like, I don't want to sin and just be like, well, I'm just a sinner. Or whatever. No, I want God to sanctify me and change me. He's given me his Holy Spirit. 
life has entered into each of our lives here and the ability to be aware of sin and then to have the power to do something about that that I didn't have before I became a Christian. I want to walk in that. That's the standard that we're moving toward. The ministry of a local church, so again, we're not all perfect and, and pastors aren't perfect, but the reality is the ministry of a local church, it often rises and falls with its leadership. And if the leadership is askew, that, that body is going to really struggle going anywhere as far as spiritual growth is concerned. Warren Wiersbe, he said, Godly leadership means God's blessing, and that is what we desperately need. Now, Paul adds two more phrases to this passage. I'm going to end with this pretty soon here. Again, no amens, please. Uh, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. And the idea there is that by looking past a person's obvious sins that they are persisting in, at least tacitly, is a statement of, we approve of that person's sin. Oh, that's no problem for us. Oh, yes, I understand he's running around on the side with others, but that's no problem for us. He's a really good businessman, and we'll really help our church advance financially. No, it's a, it's a, a tacit approval of their behavior. When you look past it. Secondly, Paul says, but keep yourself, he says, and keep yourself pure. Now, certainly, I think that's an admonition to Timothy. Like, look, don't you get involved in sin either. I think that is as well. But I, I think what Paul's point here is, by you saying that that guy's sin doesn't mattered, matter, you have entered in essentially to that guy's sin. And that's going to stain you and your ministry, Timothy. Because, again, you think about the, the conversation that we'll have. Do you know that they had a guy on their staff that was involved in this sort of sin, and they just looked past it? Well, what's that say of the person that just looked past it, right? It's going to stain that person and their work and their ministry as well. So, yes, Timothy is to keep himself morally clean, but he's also to keep himself pure in the sense of free from association with the sins of others. Now, Verse 23, squirrel experience here. Paul, and you see, it's in parentheses. So Paul, you know, this is just, and by the way, you know, he's whispering, it's a sidebar conversation here. It's odd. It's not a strange statement, necessarily. It's just odd that it's in the center of this particular passage here. And people have tried to figure out, like, why is it included in this passage? What, like, where was Paul going uh, and how did he get here? The, the statement is this. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now that seems to indicate, this is the only place we would know this, it seems to indicate that Timothy had taken some sort of abstinence vow of sorts, uh, whether it was formal or not, I don't know, but just this, I'm not going to drink any alcohol at all. All right. It seems like that's the, what um, Timothy has done, and so Paul is addressing that. And again, he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, some have used this verse as a justification for their consumption of alcohol. And they'll say something to the effect of, well, Paul even told Timothy to drink a little wine. That's not Paul's point. Paul's not talking about the social consumption of alcohol. All right? the, the scripture talks a lot about alcohol, being wise with the consumption of alcohol, how, uh, what can happen as a result of being engaged with alcohol and where it can take you, it's, and wisdom. It definitely talks about drunkenness and the sin of drunkenness. And there's some debate as to can I have a drink of this when I have that meal and, and so on and so forth. There's some debate about that. And the scripture speaks wisdom into that issue. And so you can delve into that and you can look at that. But here, Paul's not telling Timothy, look, you got to get yourself a nice bottle of red. I don't even know what that means. But, you know, when you have this meal, I was over in Rome, and everyone drinks wine with their meals or whatever, and I'm told it does something to the food. It makes it even better with the taste buds or what all that. I didn't try it out necessarily here. Um, that's all. I just want to share that with you. <laughs> uh, so uh, there you go. That's not what Paul's getting at. I think what happens is this, Paul's squirrel experience. I think what happened is Paul just talked about purity. 
And it reminded him that Timothy has sought to be a wonderful example and has sort of taken this little vow unto himself that I am not going to do anything to be a bad example to the people that I am called to lead, and so I'm not going to drink any alcohol. Well, the problem is that all that left was contaminated water, dirty water. If you've ever been into a third world situation, one of the first things they tell you when you get there is, yo, man, don't drink the water. You'll do, just make sure it's bottled water here because like for Mexico where they say Montezuma's revenge, I don't know what they say in other parts of the world, but you'll know about it a little later that your body wasn't ready for the impurities that the folks that live there have gotten used to. And so he says here, drink a little wine uh, here, to, and I think it's just simply for medicinal purposes. That's the only reason that he does so. Why does he do so? I think it has to do with that, that mentioning of the word purity. Anywho, let's go on to verse 24. He says, now the sins of some people are conspicuous, plain, obvious. Everybody sees it going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Go back to verse 22, which was don't lay hands upon people too hastily. You know, you, you look at a person's life and you say, oh man, that guy, he's a mess. He would never be an elder. You can look at that guy's life and say, now that guy is awesome. Look at it. He comes in. His hair is finely combed. He's wearing a shirt and tie. His kids are well-behaved. I mean, that guy should be one of our elders. You know, he's only been here 10 minutes. Well, I can tell. Well, no, you can't. All righty. Some people's sins, they go before them. I heard one person said it's like they enter into a room like a trumpet, and you come following in after, and everybody knows what you're involved with. And other people's, you know, they, they look good. They play a nice game. You just need to take some time to know them. And then when you know them, you're like, man, you really are a cutting individual, or you're a bitter person, or you really are selfish, and everything is about yourself. And you discover that over time. Paul acknowledges that. He recognized that. He says, Timothy, take your time with this decision. You want to avoid that horrible situation where you have to you know, get up in front of a bunch of people and dismiss a person from uh, the elder board? He says, the best way you can do that is take your time with your decision Make sure the people that you're selecting to fill the role are people that will likely succeed in fulfilling that role. And so with that, Paul concludes this section of the letter. Three parts, I think, again, how to protect the elders. Don't just receive baseless accusations. How to correct the elders if you need to rebuke them publicly. And finally, how to select the elders. And so with that, let's pray together. And Father, we desire to be a church that is true to your word. And even a passage like this, we don't want to just look at it and think like, that's good advice, I'll give that some thought. Lord, we want to be responsive to it. And Lord, uh, I, I believe that we have sought to honor you in these things. And so we ask for you to bless that. We pray that you would continue to direct us, Lord, if there's areas that perhaps we're missing the mark, that you would reveal that and we would respond. And Lord, as, uh, as congregants, Lord, as, as we go from this place and we get involved once more in uh, the world in which we live, in the places we work, in the neighborhoods we live, in the, the families that we're a part of, Lord, we want to represent you well. We want to honor you. And so direct us and use your word, even this passage, which may not seem to immediately apply to my day in and my day out. Lord, we pray that you would use this word to guide our steps. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Refiner's fire. Refiner's fire. Would you guys stand with us? Let's sing. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold. And pray. Purify my heart, purify my 
To be holy is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be, I choose to be holy, set apart. yet know Christ, you haven't had your sins forgiven, you haven't entered into a relationship with him, or you hear stuff like that and you're thinking, I don't even know what he's talking about. I'd love to talk with you a little bit further. So come on up after service. We'll go over on the side and we'll just have a, a good conversation about that. I want to close with this scripture. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole, whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do this. God bless you, and thank you for being here.